It is International Fight Week for the UFC, which is why we have a big UFC 290 pay-per-view going down this weekend. However, there's also LFA 162 going down in Brazil and PFL Europe Series number two going down across the pond. And if you're looking for tape on all of these obscure fighters from the Brazilian regional scene and from the European regional scene, we got you covered on the MMA Fight Archive. We're closing in on over 40 members signed up over the last two months and we appreciate every single one of those guys. But the reason they're sticking around is they see the value that it brings to even try out the seven day free trial, but also over the 1600 plus, almost 1700 now, fighter profiles that are on there that makes their researching lives so much easier. So if you're wondering who the hell Valentin Woodburn is, we have every single one of his fights on the MMA Fight Archive, including his last one, which just took place uh, I believe back in August, I, I'm pretty certain, I, I would say with 99% certainty that there's no other database that you'll be able to find that specific fight and check it out, seven day free trial, check it on the link in the description below. And uh, yeah, look forward to the Contender Series, which also starts in August as well. We'll start posting those for you guys very shortly too. But the MMA Fight Archive is your one-stop shop for all your researching needs for all MMA promotions. Make sure you guys check it out. All right, let's get right into the episode. Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMA LOT. And this week, we're going over the big UFC 290 card headlined by two title fights. In the co-main event, we have the flyweight champion Brandon Moreno seeking revenge against the guy that has defeated him twice. One professionally and one in an exhibition, Alexandre Pantoja. And then in the main event, we got a great featherweight matchup. It's a unification bout between undisputed champion Alexander Volkanovsky and interim champion Yair Rodriguez. Will Volkanovsky continue his supreme run in the featherweight division or will there be a new crowned king in Yair Rodriguez who's able to unify the belts? We'll find out this week and not to mention we got a bunch of other great fights on the card including a number one contender fight for the middleweight division where we have Robert Whitaker, former champion, going up against Drikus Duplessis to determine who takes on Israel Adesanya later this year down in Sydney, Australia. We got Robbie Lawler on the card as well, which is always sure to provide violence. And then we also have Jalen Turner taking a step up in competition, going up against Dan the Hangman Hooker. Not to mention the return of Bo Nickel, taking on a short notice replacement, but still always fun to see the ultra prospect step in there and continue progressing his way into the ranking of the middleweight division. Hopefully you guys have been enjoying all the content dropping for you guys as of late, dropping one pretty much every single day, but the lockcast was a little bit delayed this week because we've been on a little bit of a slump with the predictions, so I wanted to ensure that I went through everything with the fine tooth comb and tried to give you guys the best information and best breakdowns and most importantly, the best predictions possible so that we can get back on the horse and start giving you guys these dubs. 
So I apologize for the delay this week, but glad to still get it out more than uh, in notice of uh, the fights actually going down on Saturday. Also just saying that we also have regional events going down. LFA 162 and PFL Europe Series 2 both go down this weekend. If you're looking for breakdowns for those, I don't do videos for the public for those. Those are strictly written breakdowns that I drop on the Patreon. Link in the description below. Make sure you guys check it out. All right, let's quickly go over the lock of the night and dog of the night predictions from last week just to give you guys the transparency that we always do. And it's been two back-to-back -back UFC lock of the night slumps. We got Miss Melissa Gatto, who was unable to get the job done against Ariane Lipsky. I thought she did enough in the first two rounds. However, Lipsky did enough, uh, you know, optically speaking, to make it look good enough for the judges for her to get her hand raised by decision. So we take an L there. Thankfully, we get a dub on the Cage Warriors scene where we got the Malad Ahadi fight to finish under two and a half rounds. That hits for our lock of the night play for us. So that brings our lock of the night prediction record from uh, to 54 and 17 on the year, which brings it to a 76% hit rate. And then in terms of the dog of the night, went with Ibis Magomedov, which was a horrible call in, the, in hindsight. I didn't realize that his gas tank was so piss poor. Uh, he loses in the main event of the UFC card. So we take an L on the dog of the night prediction there. But we hit on the Cage Warriors dog of the night. Cage Warriors being the easiest promotion that I've been capping all year. So if you're looking for breakdowns for those predictions are strictly on the Patreon for that. But the underdog hits plus 200, I believe it was, for the under two and a half in the Stephanie Evans fight. That one hits with relative ease. Her opponent... Uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce her name, but she has no ground game at all. And that was my hesitation in terms of taking the chalk on her, which is why I was more comfortable taking the under in that matchup. And that hits for our dog of the night. And that brings our dog of the night record now to 32 and 40 for a 44% hit rate. Again, if you're looking for breakdowns for LFA and PFL this weekend, strictly on the Patreon link in the description below. Make sure you guys check that out. If you do your own research, the MMA Fight Archive has all the links to past fights for all these fighters. Check that out. MMA Fight Archive, seven-day free trial. Link in the description below. Check it out. Again, there's two different Patreons that I got there. One for my personal predictions and write-ups on all these fights. And then the other one is for the uh, Fight Archive, which is direct links to past fights for every fighter competing on these upcoming cards make sure you check it out i've had a couple people sign up for one thinking it's the other i try to lay it out as best as i can in the description so make sure you guys check it out the seven day free trial is only for the mma fight archive again check that out and lastly shout out to godzilla godzilla wins as always where i drop my main event article for them on wednesdays and my three best prop or three best money line spots on thursdays you guys can check that out links for those are in the description below once they get posted to the website but also check out godzillawins.com anyway they got great handicappers for every single sport that you need so if it's not just mma you can check out the other spots that they cap as well and you can get some dubs over there too all right without further ado i believe we got 13 or 14 fights to get through for this 290 card let's get right into it Kicking things off in the lightweight division, we got 11-5 Kemwella Kirk going up against 11-1 Esteban Ribovic. Starting off on the Kemwella Kirk side, he made a successful UFC debut on short notice back in 2021 where he defeated Amir uh, Makwan Amir Khani by decision. 
He showcased very solid grappling defense as well as a very solid striking game, which eventually got him that decision victory. He followed that up with a loss to Damon Jackson a couple months later, where he got submitted in the second round of their matchup. That was a fight where he was unable to keep up with the grapple-heavy approach of Jackson. And even in the striking round, Jackson was able to push him back and put a pace on him that he was unable to keep up with. At his best, the BJJ black belt Kamala Kirk is actually able to use his striking to keep his opponents at distance and can often mix in his grappling when required to get his jiu-jitsu going to even get some either ground and pound from on top or even pull off a submission of his own. On the flip side for Esteban Rebovics, this Killcliffe FC product started off his UFC career on an unfortunate loss. He took on short notice replacement Loic Radzibov, who actually replaced his opponent this weekend, Kamwala Kirk, and that grapple-heavy approach from Radzibov was too much for Rebovics to keep up with. However, it wasn't all bad for Rebovix as he was able to get off some solid damage of his own and even inflicted a ton of damage actually on Radzibov. And I believe you could even make a little bit of a case that he deserved to win that fight off of damage alone. That is his bread and butter. He goes out there, he stalks his opponent with his long rangey striking and he looks to put them away. On the regional scene, he's going up against very low-level competition, but you saw in his contender series fight, as well as his uh, UFC debut, that he can actually hang with some of these guys and inflict massive damage. So something to look out for is the improvements from this 27-year-old, as well as the knockout power that he possesses in terms of putting his opponents away. I've seen a lot of love for Kamala Kirk this weekend. I'm a big Kirk guy. Like I said, I've cast him as an underdog in his debut against Makwan Americani. However, I just don't know if he has what it takes to deal with the aggressive striking style of Esteban Rebovics. Rebovics has shown in past fights that he can deal with grapple-heavy approaches and even do a good enough job in terms of working back to his feet and getting back to his handiwork. And that's where I think that Kirk is going to struggle. Even though he's a fluid striker in his own right, he doesn't deal well with pressure and I feel like he's going to be dealing with nothing but pressure from Esteban Rebovics. So I'm going to go with Rebovics here. I think even the under two and a half is not a bad way of looking at this fight, but I think that Rebovics eventually finds that chin of Kirk, overwhelms him with strikes, puts him down, and puts him out with some ground and pound. So give me Esteban Rebovics. Go against the line movement here and take him to win this fight by finish. Shifting on down to the flyweight division, we got 13 and 7 Shannon Ross going up against 8 and 2 Jesus Aguilar. Starting off on the Shannon Ross side, he's riding a two-fight losing streak, which actually included his contender series fight against Vinicius Salvador. That fight only lasted about a round or so, and we saw him put on a decent enough performance, even in a loss, that the UFC decided to still bring him around and sign him to the big show. Unfortunately, he came up short in his debut earlier this year against Clayton Rodriguez, who was able to dispatch of him in the first round of that fight with a barrage of punches starting off to the body that crumpled Ross. And then it was just a couple more shots to the head where the referee was forced to stop, step in. At his best, Shannon Ross is a guy that likes to push his opponents back and utilize some clinch work to wear on his opponents and then he'll break off, get back into distance and do the same thing over and over again. However, he does try to mix in some grappling when he gets the opportunity but I still don't know if this guy is UFC worthy at this point he's 34 years old and he's two and three over his last five fights one of which I which actually came to Steve Ersig who just recently made his UFC debut and pulled off an upset victory over David Dvorak 
Shannon Ross, again, he was decent on the regional scene down there on Australia, but I just don't know if he has what it takes to cut it at the UFC level. On the flip side for Jesus Aguilar, he lost his first professional MMA fight, then went on an eight-fight winning streak, which included his UFC clinching performance against uh, Erison Fajera on the Contender Series. He showcased decent uh, you know, ability to battle back from adversity, reversing positions, and even pulling off his patented guillotine choke to earn that UFC contract. Half of his wins, half of his eight wins, have all come by guillotine choke, just showing how dangerous he is in terms of latching on to the neck of his opponent and bringing it on home with him. He even pulled it off against Edgar Chires, who also fights later on in this card. His unfortunate UFC debut was a loss as a massive underdog to Tatsuru Taira, who also fights on this card later on. Uh, but that was a fight where Aguilar clinched on to his uh, patented guillotine choke for a little bit too long. But the BJJ savvy Tyra was able to wait it out, wait for Aguilar to gas his arms out. And he was able to get out of that position and then eventually find a submission of his own. Aguilar is very aggressive with looking for that front choke, especially when guys try to go in on desperation takedowns that he's able to capitalize on. He throws big heat in his kicks and punches, which usually forces out the uh, desperate takedown attempt from his opponent, but also he's able to go out there and look for takedowns of his own to get that top position and do some good enough damage from on top. I think he's a solid prospect, and I just don't know if he's getting enough respect from the public given his skill set, but I think with a little bit more positive performances, he could definitely get that respect and showcase that he deserves to be at this level. Another fight where it seems like the public is pretty high on the underdog Shannon Ross here, which is the why his line has come down to about plus 115. I'm not on that train either, though. I just feel he's a little bit too fragile to be dealing with a power puncher like Jesus Aguilar, who also can go out there and snatch the neck of Ross. I feel as though Aguilar will do a good enough job dealing with the style of Ross, pushing him backwards, landing big strikes, and eventually extract that desperation takedown required for Aguilar to latch onto that neck. And to me, Ross just seems like one of those guys that will panic under those type of circumstances and eventually tap out. So another one where under two and a half, probably the way to go, specifically Aguilar by sub, as that's going to be my prediction here. And we'll take advantage of the line movement going against us here and get the better number on Mr. Jesus Aguilar. So like I said, I'm going to go Jesus by submission. Let's call it second or third round. In this next matchup, we move up a division to the Bantamweights, where we got undefeated 8-0 Cameron Simon going up against 15-2 short-notice UFC debutant Terrence Mitchell. Starting off on the Cameron Simon side, he extended his winning streak and undefeated record to 8-0 last time around, even after getting a point taken away against Mona Martinez. He showcased very good explosiveness, good power in his hands, as well as a good top game where he was able to rain down big shots and hurt Martinez on numerous occasions. It's unfortunate though, as in both of his UFC fights, he's been docked a point due to unfortunate fouls that he's uh, you know incurred. Hopefully he's able to, you know, really rein in that part of his game with his fingers and uh, kneeing down opponents because as, as he continues to take steps up in competition, it's going to get harder for him to get away and still get W's even after getting points taken away. A lot of his success, I believe, comes from his physical capabilities, which is his explosiveness, his physicality, his strength and his power. But his skill set is really starting to come into play as well. 
The weakness in his game seems to have been his takedown defense, but he does such a good job in terms of getting out of bad positions, showing the poison patience of a veteran, and then eventually, like I said, getting back to his feet and then getting back on the, the gas and putting the pressure on his opponents. I can't believe that I was still able to cash him as a pretty big underdog in his contender series fight against Josh Wayne Kim, where he was eventually able to over, you know, overwhelm him and finish him in the last frame of that matchup. He is also a close training partner of one Drickus Duplessis, who they always seem to fight on the same card, at least over the last two for sure. But they show similar similarities in their games. But I think that the 22-year-old Cameron Simon has a far higher ceiling than Mr. Drickus Duplessis. Start uh, flipping on over to Terrence Mitchell, who's coming in on a five-fight winning streak, I believe it is right now. But that's actually a winning streak after he had... Uh, t- um, competed on the contender series way back in 2016 he ended up getting knocked out by kai car of france within 30 seconds of their matchup terence mitchell is an alaska fc product who has been making a name for himself beating up on some of the lower level guys that the alaska scene has to offer i believe uh, all of his opponents except one of them have less than seven fights that's pretty crazy considering that he's 15 and 2 throughout his professional MMA career. He's pretty long and lanky for this bantamweight division standing at 5 foot 10 with a 74 inch reach and he has a decent kicking game from the outside. His bread and butter seems to be the ground game where he's able to apply chokes and submissions that unfortunately his opponents just aren't ready for nor are they trained well enough to deal with it. Hence why he's getting away with beating some of these guys that he is. I think now that he's in the UFC and at 33 years old, he'll get a rude awakening as to why he probably didn't make it the first time around. And this is just going to be a, you know, the peak of his career, making it to the UFC, making that walk. But I just don't know if he'll ever be able to pull off a win, especially with this talent-rich bantamweight division. Although Simon's only... 8-0, 22 years old, I think there's a huge skill difference in this matchup. Terrence Mitchell has a ton of experience under his belt, like I said, but he's been facing complete scrubs throughout his career other than his stint on The Ultimate Fighter where he got starched by Mr. Uh, High Car France in 30 seconds. So I think here we'll see Cameron Simon utilize his explosivity, his speed advantage, and his power to find the chin of Terrence Mitchell and eventually put him out. The under two and a half or fight doesn't go to decision is very chalky in the spot, but it's one of the spots that I feel most confident in this week, which I'll be more than happy to pay the chalk here as I feel like even if Mitchell somehow pulls off the victory here, it's probably going to come by finish. But I think he's just not ready for the type of skill and physicality he's going to be dealing with in the very explosive Cameron Simon. So give me Simon and I think his victory comes by knockout in this matchup. Next up in the light heavyweight division, we have undefeated prospect 8-0 Vitor Petrino going up against 16-6 Marcin Pracnia. Starting off on the Petrino side, he made a successful UFC debut where he defeated Anton Turkali by decision. That was a result that kind of caught me by surprise, but it really showcased that Petrino has a decent enough gas tank to still showcase his heavy punching power even late in fights and also the ability to get out of bad positions when he's being grappled. I really thought Turkali had the grapple-heavy approach required to really nullify the punching power and the energetic and explosivity from the Petrino side, but Turkali was unable to maintain dominant position whenever he did get those takedowns, and Petrino was able to e- either able to reverse them, do some big damage from on top, or eventually get back to his feet and let go with his power-punching style once again. 
He has big knockout power and six of his eight victories have come by knockout. And I think that he still showcases a lot of promise, especially at 25 years old. He's been training alongside Elizio Zaleski Dos Santos for the majority of his career, but also has a lot of high-level training partners that are still looking to make their name on the regional scene, specifically on the LFA promotion. I think that Petrino is much better than I originally gave him credit for, and I look forward to seeing his improvements as he continues to step inside the UFC cage. On the flip side, for Marcin Prakneo, he's coming off a very pedestrian victory over William Knight last time around. Knight only landed 8 of his 33 significant strikes that night as Prakneo was able to trance around or prance around at a range here and land a total of 69 kicks out of the 73 total or 79 total significant strikes he landed that night. He faced almost no resistance that night as William Knight looked like he was stuck in mud and was unable to get off any offense of his own. Marching Prakneo, he was more than happy to fight that kind of fight, considering that he likes to fight with a karate style where he's able to dart in and out of the range of his opponents, land his one, two shots down the middle, or just be content with chipping away with his, his kicks from distance. I still believe that even though he's made a little bit of an improvement since the 0-3 start that he had to his UFC career, he still may not be cut out to make it to the top of this division. Wins over Khalil Roundtree and Ike Villanueva are decent, but still not enough for him to make it to the next level in this middleweight or sort of this light heavyweight division. I feel like this is a great matchup for Vitor Petrino. Like he's going to have the power advantage. He has the durability to deal with the strikes of Prakneo. And I think he has the aggressiveness in terms of cutting off the cage and not really allowing Prakneo to get off on his karate style. If Prakneo wants to go out there and grapple, I just don't think he's a good enough grappler to really hold Petrino down in long periods to win this fight by decision should he even creep to that decision mark however i think petrino will be able to kind of replicate what he did against Turkali, pull off some reversals get that top position rain down big shots and eventually find that knockout unlike he was able to against to do to do uh, against Turkali, i think he'll actually find the finish in this one and get back to his finishing ways give me a vitor petrino by knockout i actually think it comes pretty early as well let's call it round one Next up, we got a 130-pound catchweight between Tatsuro Taira, who's coming in with a 13-0 record, going up against 10-4 Edgar Chires. Starting off on the Tyra side, he was scheduled to fight Clayton Rodriguez a couple weeks back. Unfortunately, he was forced to pull out, and Tatsuro Tyra now takes on Edgar Chires, who is actually supposed to be competing on the upcoming season of the Contender Series, but now finds himself in the UFC, taking on a very stiff opponent in Tyra. Tyra, very skilled, 13-0 obviously showcases all that you need to know, but the fact that the majority of his wins are coming by submission just showcases what he's so good at. He's very good in terms of getting fights to the ground or even hopping on the back of his opponent, eventually sinking in that submission choke. His striking game is slowly starting to come along and he seems to be getting more and more comfortable with it considering the long lengthy range, especially with this 70-inch reach at this uh, flyweight division. Although this fight is taking place at a catchweight, he's still going to be close to that flyweight division and showcase that he can go out there and continue this progression a 23-year-old acquires to eventually make it to the top of the UFC. I think Tyra is one of the best Japanese prospects that we've had in a while, and if he can continue improving his striking game, I think it's just a matter of time before he starts knocking on the rankings doors and starts becoming one of those top guys. 
On the flip side for Edgar Chires, he is most famously known for that unfortunate triangle choke stoppage or lack of stoppage against Yanni Vasquez back on the Fury FC card earlier this year. That was a fight where it didn't seem like the referee was clued into the fact that Vasquez was clearly out from the choke that Edgar Chires had applied and unfortunately Vasquez woke up in the choke and eventually got his arm snapped as well because of well the lack of being aware of where he was and the lack of awareness from the referee but Chires was you know he had his victory or dominant victory overlooked considering how impressive he actually looked in that fight and especially from how good he looked in the contender series fight that he had last year as well against Clayton Carpenter that was a fight where he came in as a pretty big underdog, but showcased very good skills that the UFC was very high on him still, and it only took him two wins on the regional scene to eventually get this short notice call-up, or at least get a shot on the next season of the contender series. But I'm glad for him because he deserves to be in the UFC with a 10-4 record at 27 years old. He's an aggressive striker that loves to put together flashy strikes, just as you see in the graphic up there with his flying knee that he landed against Carpenter. He's very fun, very entertaining, and it could definitely carve out a spot for himself on this UFC roster if he's able to get a couple victories. But he's really up against it, taking the short notice spot against a very hot prospect like Tetsuro Taira. It was no surprise to see Mr. Tyra as a minus 900 favorite going into this matchup, but I think that Edgar Chires presents a little bit more issues than somebody that should be at plus 600. He's a very aggressive striker who's going to keep his foot on the gas and keep Tyra in uncomfortable positions. So on the money line, I just want nothing to do with Tyra. However, I'm feeling as though that there's going to be some violence in this matchup, whether it's from the Chires side, but I ultimately think it's going to be from the Tyra side. I believe at a certain point, he's going to be able to land a takedown and eventually get to a dominant enough position to eventually sink in that rear naked choke, which seems to be his patented submission at this point in time. It should be a closer fight than the odds indicate, but I feel like violence would be the best way to go about it. But in terms of a straight-up prediction, I do think the Japanese prospect continues his undefeated run and stretches his record to 14-0 and that win coming by submission. Next up, we have a light heavyweight rematch between Jimmy Crute who comes in with a 12-3-1 record, going up against 13-3-1 Alonzo Menafield. Starting off on the Jimmy Crude side of things, he's coming off that draw that he had against Alonzo Menafield, and that draw was due to the fact that Menafield had held on to the cage in the third round after a very deep takedown attempt from Crude, and the referee had no choice but to take an immediate point away from him, which eventually gave us that draw. However, Jimmy Crude came into that fight as a minus 200 favorite as a lot of people expected his grapple-heavy approach to be too much for Menafield. He did have some success throughout that fight, but mostly in the third round, which was the only round that he unanimously won on the judges' scorecards. He needs to tighten up the striking game a little bit if he hopes to be successful this time around, but I think that he still showcased that the time that he took off after the Jamal Hill loss, the two-fight losing streak that he was on, but also the major life changes that he made throughout his life, including, you know, I believe he's given up alcohol, given up the partying life, and just completely focused and determined on becoming a better fighter. I think we saw some of those improvements inside that Alonzo Menafield fight. On the flip side for Menafield, he also had some changes leading up to the Jimmy Crude fight, including changing camps from going from Safe Sayud at 4-7 May to training up in Denver with Mr. Pat Berry. That was a very weird partnership that not a lot of people saw coming, but apparently he gave him enough confidence to stay with him and showcase that it was a good move for him, especially in this rematch that he's having against Jimmy Crude. 
Unfortunately for Alonzo Menafield, I feel like he's just going to remain that one fighter at 35 years old who will always go out there and rely on his big knockout power to try to get his finishes. He showcased solid improvements in terms of his cardio and portioning out his gas tank, but he still does slow down a lot as he gets deeper into fights, which means that he can't really implement a grapple-heavy approach as he tried against Mozrov, which he was successful with, but as he continues to take steps up in competition in this light heavyweight division, it's going to get harder and harder for him to really be comfortable getting opponents to the ground, and if he's unable to finish them, his gas tank will take a major hit, which will be very unfortunate as fights get into deep waters it's crazy to see that jimmy crew went from being a minus 200 favorite to now being about minus 120 against alonzo menafield when it really was just you know one clipping in that second round for menafield that really turned the tide of that fight and gave that fight well even if it wasn't for that point deduction it would have been in menafield's favor but it seems and it shows that jimmy crew can do a good enough job in terms of getting the fight to the ground and establishing his top control I don't know if he'll do a good enough job in terms of opening up a submission opportunity or even an opportunity for him to rain down some ground and pound, which is why I also like the over two and a half in this matchup around that plus 200 marks. I think Menafield does a good enough job in terms of keeping guys from finishing him, especially when he gets put on his back. But I think that we'll see Crute uh, do a good job in terms of being methodical on the feet, not getting clipped, eventually dragging this fight to the ground and then doing some good enough work from on top to get that decision victory. So the very, you know, uh, there's not a lot of plus money spots, money line or totals that I really like on this card other than the over two and a half in this matchup here. So I'm going to go with Crude. I think he wins by decision, which is the exact same uh, prediction I gave in the first matchup. But seeing the second matchup go the way that I did, you know, one minor slip up. If he's able to shore that up here, Crude's going to be able to get that dominant position from on top and grind this fight out. So give me Jimmy Crude by decision. But the over two and a half is looking kind of swanky at that plus 200 line. Give me a nibble on that as well. Heading on over to the women's strawweight division. We got 10-0 Yasmin Yaragui going up against 7-2 Denise Gomez. Kicking things off on the Yaragui side, she has a flawless 10-0 record, like I said, with two of those victories coming inside the UFC. A lot of people were very quest or very questionable of her UFC debut, especially the placement of her fight against Yasmin Lucindo, which was the third fight from the top on a UFC San Diego sold-out crowd. But those women showed out, had a great fight, and it was Yaragui who was able to pick up the unanimous decision victory that night. Next up, she went up against Estela Nunes, which was a bit of a rocky start for Yaragui, who was un unable to really get anything going in that first round, as Nunes did a great job in terms of maintaining her distance, using her footwork, and countering effectively. However, Yaragui was able to push the pace in the second round, eventually clipping Nunes within the first minute of that round, and then eventually landed some big shots from on top, and was able to ground and pound her and get the victory by TKO. Yaragui is a very promising prospect at 24 years old, trading out of the Entrem gym, training with some high-level training partners, and we know that she's improving every time out. She's a very slick striker with great movement and good combination work, especially with her ability to mix in kicks after her strikes. She moves very well, and she's getting more comfortable fighting at distance and getting in and out of range without eating too much big damage. I think she's one of the more promising prospects in the strawweight division. And if she continues progressing at the rate that she's at, we might have a top 10 fighter on her hands in the very near future. 
On the flip side, we got 23-year-old Denise Gomez, who took on Bruna Brasil a couple months back and pulled off a pretty stellar upset that night. That night, she was able to utilize her bull-type approach, where she was able to crash the pocket, use big strikes to push uh, Brasil up against the cage, and then eventually drag her to the ground and do some big ground and pound from on top, where Brasil was able to for- was forced to shell up and ultimately get finished that night. That was a very surprising performance for me as I thought Brazil would showcase good enough footwork, good enough range management and counter striking from distance that would keep Gomez, uh, you know, baffled and kept her at distance. Unfortunately for Brazil that night, Gomez really showed up and was able to put on a good enough performance to get her hand raised, like I said, by TKO. It was really the Loma Lukbunui fight that turned me off from Gomez, seeing how badly she was dealing with the grapple heavy approach from a Muay Thai specialist like Lukbunui. However, if Gomez is able to go out there and assert her pace, assert her dominance, and be successful with crashing the pocket, more often than not, she's going to be able to get her hand raised, especially with the amount of power that she carries in her strikes. I think the person that I was looking for in the Bruno Brasil and Denise Gomez fight was Yasmin Yarugui. She looks like someone that's going to actually be able to maintain her distance, pick apart Denise Gomez from uh, distance, uh, utilize good counter-striking, good footwork, pivoting off, getting off the cage, and doing a good enough job in terms of nullifying the amount of control time that Gomez is going to be able to get. Also, the possibility that Gomez might be able to land a big shot, I don't feel it's as po- uh, as as live here as it was in the Brazil fight. Yarugui is far more polished than Brazil in the striking realm, especially with her combination striking and her countering. As she starts to be more successful with countering Gomez, as Gomez crashes the pocket, Gomez will be less inclined to crash the pocket because she doesn't want to keep eating those counter shots from Yarugui. So again, I get the love on Gomez here because she kind of pushes the pace and she tries to dictate the pace, but I think she's going to struggle to do that here against a better technical striker and probably better you know she's just better overall i think yargui will have way more advantages in this fight i feel much better about the over two and a half here because i feel as though that this will be a lot of that cat and mouse game where gomez is trying to get to yargui but yargui does a good job in terms of setting traps landing her damage and getting out of trouble which will see this fight go into the 15 minute mark seeing it go to a decision give me yargui by decision but over two and a half probably being my favorite spot in this matchup Next up in the welterweight division, we got the return of Jack Della Maddalena coming in with a 14-2 record on an impressive 14-fight winning streak, going up against 7-0 short-notice replacement Josiah Harrell. Starting off on the Maddalena side, he successfully dispatched of Randy Brown back in February where he was able to cut off the cage, push Randy Brown up against the cage, land a beautiful combination that put Brown on Wobbly Street and eventually followed up with the submission to take home that victory. It's been an impressive four-fight winning streak in the UFC for Maddalena as he's disposed of all four of his opponents in the first round. The most impressive of which, to me, was the Ramazan Amiv fight, where he was able to really hurt Amiv to the body, crumple him, and eventually get that victory by TKO. Madalena is a very impressive striker who likes to go out there and put the pressure on his opponents with his combination striking and eventually get them out of there. The big question mark in his game is obviously his ground game, as Ange Lusa on the contender series was able to put him in some bad positions, but he showed some good discipline and was able to work back to his feet and get back to his handiwork. That is what a lot of people thought he would be tested in with his original opponent, Sean Brady, unfortunately pulling out about a week ago. 
Madalena, I believe, still showcases that he can make improvements in all aspects of the game. And I think that Sean Brady fight would have been another example of showcasing that this guy is becoming more and more complete, especially at 26 years old. His opponent this weekend, Josiah Harrell, just picked up a victory about uh, a couple weeks ago, actually, under the LFA banner, where he was able to TKO his opponent, Michael Roberts, in the third round with some ground and pound. Harrell trains out of the Immortal Training Center, which is Mike Brown's gym over there in Ohio. But Harrell also comes from a wrestling background where he's able to showcase in the MMA arc cage that he can take these fighters to the ground and do good enough damage from on top where he's been able to finish every single one of his seven victories. He's a very promising prospect, but I just don't know if this short notice opportunity is against such a high level of competition is the right move for him. However, if anybody gets offered that UFC contract, I'm sure it's better than the $500 to $1,000 they're making on the regional scene, so they're more than happy to take that 10 and 10 paycheck, even if it means that they end up taking a loss in their first UFC fight. But Harrell, a very solid wrestler, and if people like the wrestle-heavy approach or grapple-heavy approach of Sean Brady, they're definitely getting a good bargain on Harrell at plus 600. I just don't know if this short notice opportunity is the right spot for him to showcase his total skill set. Like I was saying a little bit earlier in the breakdown for one of the guys, I think it was Harrell. Um, if you liked the grappling advantage that Sean Brady had over Madalena, you're getting a bargain here at plus 600 on Harrell. Harrell is a solid wrestler with a good uh, wrestling background, and he might be able to get Madalena to the ground. The question is, can he assert his dominance from that top position? I don't think so. I think Madalena has made improvements in terms of working back to his feet, doing good work with his striking, and eventually opening up that uh, you know that that TKO that he's always been able to get. I don't know if it comes in the first round, but I believe that the grappling attempts from Harrell will cause this fight to leak into that second round, which could make that over one and a half a little bit juicy. However, I still think that the finish is going to come within the first seven and a half minutes of this fight. The grappling onslaught of Harrell will start to slow down, especially considering he took this fight on short notice. And then the fact that he's at a significant striking disadvantage against a guy like Madalena. I feel like Madalena will find that knockout, like I said, probably within the first round. But it won't come without a little bit of adversity coming from the wrestling of Harrell. Give me Madalena, though, by knockout, round one. Headlining the prelim portion of this pay-per-view card, we got a welterweight matchup between ruthless Robbie Lawler coming in with a 29 and 16 record, going up against the always entertaining 15 and 6 Nico Price. Starting off on the Lawler side, it's been an unfortunate run for him over the last couple of years. Besides his novelty win over Nick Diaz, Robbie Lawler has been struggling to get into the win column of his fights. He's even dating back to that unfortunate loss he had against Ben Askren, where it looked like he had tapped, but he really did not tap, and uh, the referee unfortunately stopped that matchup. That was followed up with a shellacking by Kobe Covington, who was able to put on way too high of a pace for Robbie Lawler to keep up with. Even the Neil Magny fight, Magny was able to outwork Lawler and get his hand raised by decision. The Brian Barbarino fight didn't look too bad for Robbie as he actually won the first round on two judges' scorecards before he could not keep up with the pace nor the output of Barbarino in the second round, eventually getting finished in the dying seconds of it. Lawler still has some decent technique and some good pop on his shots, but at 41 years old and with a ton of miles on his record, I just don't know if this is the time and place for him to continue to fight. 
However, I do like the way the UFC is matching him up, not really putting him in there against guys like Colby Covington anymore, but guys that he can still go out there, have some fun fights with, and potentially even collect fight of the night bonuses. His opponent this weekend, Nico Price, is coming off a loss from back in December where he got finished by Phil Rowe in the final round of their matchup. Nico was unable to really get much of his game going that night as Rowe had his number in the striking room and did a decent enough job in terms of keeping him at range and landing the crisper shots down the pipe to hurt Price over and over again and like I said finishing him in the final frame of their matchup. Nico Price was a guy that I used to lean on a lot for uh, decisions and violence bets, but it seems like at this stage in his career, he's content with trying to seek out more of a grapple-heavy approach to try to get his hand raised. He has decent power in his strike still and is one of the more athletic you know, outliers in the game, considering the frame that he has, standing at six, foot, uh, six feet with a 76-inch reach. He's able to generate power from such weird angles and positions that guys just don't know how to really defend when he's really getting off on his strikes and landing with such precision. He's always going to be fun. He's always going to be entertaining. I just don't know if he'll ever make it to the top of the division, but I hope the UFC decides to keep him around for a little more just so that he can provide on some more fight of the night worthy performances. I feel like violence should be the spot for this matchup because I think that, uh, you know, Nico Price will be able to set a bit of a pace that Robbie Lawler might be able to keep, might not be able to keep up with. And that could open up finishing opportunities for Nico Price, especially if he's able to drag this fight to the ground. He doesn't seem like much of a lay-in prayer to me nowadays. And I think that knowing that he can just outwork Robbie Lawler and potentially finish him late will open up those finishing opportunities for him. The striking will be a little bit close early with Robbie having the technical advantages here. But I think the youth advantage, including the speed and power advantage that Nico Price will likely have in this matchup, will likely see him getting his hand raised. But I just don't know if I feel comfortable laying minus 260 on a guy like Nico Price. Robbie Lawler has shown in the Brian Barbarena fight that he can still go out there and scrap and still get his, you know, get some good licks in and even have judges who score certain rounds for him. But I think that this matchup will eventually find a knockout, whether it's from the Robbie Lawler side early or Nico Price side late. Give me fight doesn't go to decision as my favorite prop for this fight, favorite prediction for this fight but i'm gonna go with the younger fighter here and nico price to get his hand raised by tko kicking off the main card of this pay-per-view card we got a middleweight fight between super ultra hot prospect bo nickel coming in with a 4-0 record and his short notice replacement mr valentine woodburn coming in with a 7-0 record Starting off on the Bo Nickel side, he's making good on all four of his fights thus far since transitioning over from being a standout collegiate wrestler. He's been training this last several years at American Top Team, most notably helping out Jorge Masvidal to improve his takedown defense game. I don't know how much that really helped him out, but Bo has really transitioned well to MMA by finishing all of his opponents since stepping inside the cage. His contender series performances against Borrego and Beard showcase that he was ready to take the step into the UFC, but I'm glad that the UFC is deciding to bring him on nice and slowly, especially considering he's only 27 years old. His original opponent this weekend, Trishon Gore, was a solid step up from the Jamie Pickett win that he had earlier this year, and I feel that this fight against Valentin Woodburn will be another, another solid experience for him to con continue garnering that cage time required to really be comfortable in there and then start taking even more steps up against ranked opponents. 
Bo, we know what his game is. He's a very uh, wrestle-heavy fighter that likes to get opponents to the ground after throwing big strikes to make them respect his power, getting them to the ground, smashing them from on top, eventually looking for that submission opportunity and getting them out of there. I feel he is one of the more comfortable guys in the jiu-jitsu room, especially coming from a wrestling background, and I can't wait to see how he continues to improve and how he looks to implement that against higher levels of opponents. His opponent this weekend, Mr. Woodburn, comes in on short notice after picking up a win back in August of last year on against Luis Mello on the Combat Night Pro uh, promotion. Uh, Valentin Woodburn has actually been competing strictly for those guys other than his first ever amateur fight back in 2017. Th- something to note, Combat Night Pro is actually owned by one of his coaches over there at Fusion XL and you can see some of the favorable matchups he's been getting throughout his career. I don't want to say that they were just feeding him tomato cans by any means, but there were guys that he could go out there and just use his physical advantages to get his hand raised. He's a tank of a human being and throws with big power in his strikes, which is why he was able to stop the first five wins in his professional career. His last two fights, the guys didn't go out as easily as the previous ones have, but he's been able to showcase that he's a very strong grappler in terms of strength but it seems like he has a limited gas tank and was benefiting from the fact that his opponents were up there in age and were starting to slow down or also had big, big trouble in terms of getting him off of them. Uh, Woodburn, again, very, to me, when I put the right right out or right... um, uh, the write-up for this matchup on my Patreon, I had kind of compared him to Thick Willie, Mr. William Knight, who no longer finds himself in the UFC, a guy with big power, but also could be very boring at times because when he engages in the clinch, it's more so to kind of assert his dominance with his positioning, more so than trying to get off on damage and hurt his opponents. He's a you know mediocre fighter at this point in time, and I feel he would have done better trying to make it through the contender series before jumping in on short notice here against Nickel. You can obviously tell that he's more so of a sacrificial lamb just to get Bo Nichols some more experience and keep him on the card this weekend. But who knows? Maybe he has a big bomb waiting to unleash on Nickel and pull off the biggest upset in UFC history. There's nothing Woodburn does that really makes me too scared for Bo Nickel. You know, he's strong. He has some good knockout power. But that's any threat in any matchup in pretty much any mixed martial arts fight. I think Bo Nickel will have no problem getting this guy to the ground and eventually opening up a submission opportunity for himself. He might have to wear on him a little bit, but I still feel that this finish will happen within the first seven and a half minutes of this fight. Last time I checked the under one and a half, it's currently sitting at minus 400, which makes absolute sense considering that Bo Nickel is all the way up at minus 2,500, which is some of the widest odds we've ever seen in mixed martial arts. I fully expect Bo Nickel to get this fight to the ground within the first minute. And from there, I think he'll be able to get to a dominant position and find the finish over uh, uh, Woodburn. Woodburn's just not that good. He's been getting away on his physical attributes, his power, his strength, and his just ability to grind guys in positions that they can't get out of. But you don't want to try to grind on a guy like Nickel. If I'm Woodburn, I try to go out there and just lay that big power on him off the jump. And if he's unable to or gets countered with the level change and gets taken down, so be it. There's no way he's going to win this fight other than trying to get that early knockout. So the under one and a half minus 400, I think it's worth all the chalk because it could either produce that Valentin Woodburn knockout or that inevitable submission from Bo Nickel, round one submission, just as I thought he would get over Trishan Gore. Same thing's going to happen here against Woodburn. Give me Nickel, 
None of the minus 2,500. If anything, maybe he's inside the distance, but specifically that round one and specifically round one by submission. Bo Nickel extends his winning streak to 5-0, and oh, continues that run. Next up in the lightweight division, we got 13-6 and six, Jalen Turner going up against 22-12 and 12, Dan Hooker. Starting off on the Jalen Turner side of things, he got his winning streak snapped last time around against Mr. Matoush Gamrot, who was able to showcase very good grappling, controlling Turner throughout that matchup. And even with the damage that Turner was landing, Gamrot was still able to get his hand raised by a split decision that night. Turner is much better than the fighter that he was when he first made his UFC debut and that winning streak that he was on showcased the improvements that he was making. He was becoming more and more comfortable with his striking and showcasing that he can really put the damage on his opponents and get them to pull off on uh, desperation takedowns or even just fall to the ground where he's able to do big damage from on top or even lock up submissions to take home their neck and that victory as well. He's only 28 years old, and I think he's on the trajectory to eventually become a top 5-7 to seven fighter if he continues to get the solid experience that he's getting and still coming out on the winning end. His striking is very dangerous, so he does a great job in terms of establishing his range and keeping his opponents at bay. But he just throws with such heat, which makes him so dangerous as well, because he can just sting you with big power from range and then eventually get on you with his jujitsu and find that submission victory as well. He's very good at the club and sub. Just ask Mr. Brad Riddell. On the flip side for Dan Hooker, he finally came back and showcased a very solid performance and dominating performance against Claudio Poyas. That was off the back of two straight losses that he took at the hands of Islam Mahachev, which we can give him a pass for. And then the Arnold Allen fight where he very much deprived himself, cutting back down to that featherweight division and then getting absolutely starched by Arnold Allen, who was more than happy to put the pressure on him from the jump, realizing that he was getting a compromised Dan Hooker that night. But a Hooker at his best is still one of the best strikers that the lightweight division has. He is a little bit too hittable for my liking, but in terms of his offense and his output, he's still high level. He throws great combinations, utilizes his teeth kick up the middle very effectively, and he does a very good job in terms of keeping the pace and pressure on his opponents. It's just, will his durability be able to hold up considering the amount of times he's been finished over the last couple of years? I really wanted to lean on the hooker side in this matchup, but I just don't know how he's going to react to the big shots that he's going to eat from the Jalen Turner side. And I just think it's, you know, continuously going to add up. Hooker might be able to get ahead in terms of output and volume, but I think at a certain point, we're going to get that club and sub victory from uh, Jalen Turner. It's just a matter of time that he continues to stalk Hooker, land some counters. You know, Hooker's striking defense, like I alluded to earlier, not the greatest. And you need it to be on point, especially against a sniper like Jalen Turner. So I'm not big on his money line here because Hooker is definitely live given his experience and possibly technical striking advantages. It's just his durability that gives me some pause here. So I'm going to go Jalen Turner. Jalen Turner probably by club and stuff, but I think fight doesn't go to decision is my favorite spot in this fight. We have a very pivotal middleweight matchup in this next one, which will likely determine the next title challenger. We got 24-6 Robert Whitaker going up against 19-2 Drickus Duplessis. Starting off on the Whitaker side of things, he b- rebounded after losing his second matchup to Israel Adesanya by defeating Marvin Vittoria UFC Paris back in September. In that fight, Whitaker showcased what he's so good at, which is his in-and-out footwork, his striking down the pipe, and that rear high kick that he lands over and over again on his opponents. 
He's very quick and swift in terms of getting in and out of range so that he can get his offense off without getting damaged too much in return. A lot of people expected him to have durability issues, especially after getting knocked out from Israel Adesanya back in, uh, I believe it was 2018 or 2019. However, Whitaker has eaten some big shots from even different opponents and has still managed to live to tell the tale and even go out there and win these fights. He made his transition to the middleweight division back in 2014 and his only losses have come to Israel Adesanya. It's been twice that he's lost and I believe it's a 12-2 record now that he has at the 185-pound division. He might have been a little bit undersized at first, but he's put on the weight and muscle necessary to be successful at this level. It just seems that Adesanya has his right, uh, has his, um, has his number a little bit more than he would have uh, at least agreed to. However, that second fight was a lot closer than the first. You know, a lot of people, even the fans in the arena that night, booed the decision after Adesanya got his hand raised, believing that Whitaker did enough to actually win that fight and should have won, I believe, rounds two, four, and five. It was a close fight, but I think that Whitaker takes solace in knowing that he gave Adesanya his toughest test in a loss and will likely be a very formidable foe should they meet for a third time. He has a very solid wrestling game as well, which was some of the success that he was able to have in the Adesanya game or in those fights. And I believe that he'll try to lean on that even more should they be uh, matched up once again if he's able to get his hand raised this weekend. His opponent, Duplessis, is a guy that came into the UFC and has been finishing pretty much every single one of his opponents except Brad Tavares. All of Duplessis' wins have come by finish except that Tavares win. And I remember going into that matchup that a lot of people were like, if this fight goes to the decision, more than likely Tavares gets his hand raised. However, Duplessis hurt him on numerous occasions in that fight and was eventually able to get his hand raised by decision. Duplessis has a ton of power, but I believe he gets away a lot with the physical capabilities that he has. He's very explosive, he's very energetic, and has a ton of knockout power, especially when he's able to catch opponents late. Which is very weird, considering it seems to me that he has a bit of a cardio issue. He slows down a lot, breathing very heavily, and has some labored strikes. However, still manages to muster up the big knockout power required to put away guys like Darren Till, which was a club and sub opportunity for him there, and then eventually even forcing Derek Runson to quit on the stool going or at the ending of the second round of their matchup. But I believe now that he's finally fighting the top of the top of the division, we'll really see how good this guy is and how far he can take his skills just with his physical capabilities alone. I don't think I've ever seen a boring Drickus Duplessis fight, and I think that's going to reign supreme once again this weekend against a willing dance partner in Robert Whitaker. This fight will be close early, especially with the knockout power that Duplessis carries early. I guess he carries it throughout his matchup, but I think that a skilled guy like Whitaker won't get drowned into something the way that Darren Till did or the way that Derek Brunson did. Whitaker will have a cardio advantage, he'll have a striking advantage, and he'll have a speed advantage, which he'll be able to utilize to eventually find that knockout over Duplessis in the second or third round of this matchup. Fight doesn't go to decision, probably my favorite spot, considering it's sitting around that minus 160 range the last time I saw it, but I think that we're going to see a knockout here, and I think it's going to be the Aussie getting his hand raised once again, and setting up a fourth or third fight, I should say, with Israel Adesanya. Look for that rear head kick to eventually catch Duplessis slipping, and that should be the, the beginning of the end, eventually getting Whitaker to get his hand raised by knockout.
co-main event time, and it is going to be the first of two title fights that we got on top here. The first of which goes down in the flyweight division between 21-6-2 champion Brandon Moreno looking to finally avenge his two losses to 25-5 Alexandre Pantoja. Starting off on the Brandon Moreno side, he finally put the Davison-Figueredo rivalry to rest by finishing him in the third round of their last matchup. It ultimately came due to a punch that landed perfectly on the eyeball of Figueredo and immediately swelled it up and was forced to stop that fight due to the fact that he just could not open it. Brandon Moreno has shown tremendous improvements since coming back to the UFC and eventually winning that title, losing the title, but then winning it back and showcasing that he is a much far superior fighter than he was when he first came to the UFC scene. He ultimately came from the Ultimate Fighter, but he fell short on that uh, contender, or sorry, on the Ultimate Fighter to his opponent this week in Alexandre Pantoja. He got finished in that matchup in a fight that it seemed like Pantoja was dominating for the most part. The most improvements that we've seen in Moreno's game is specifically his striking. He's done a very good job in terms of being elusive, utilizing his footwork, and using good boxing combinations with speed to hurt his opponents and even open up club and sub opportunities for himself. He's very good with his cardio, so he can go a full five rounds if required. And even in the loss that he took to Figueredo, that was a fight that he was running more minutes of, but just got clipped with bad shots here and there, which ultimately gave that fight to Figueredo. It was a very close fight, but it showed that Moreno is definitely one of the top guys in the flyweight division and deserves to be the champion, if especially if he continues this streak that he's currently on. His opponent this weekend, Alexandre Pantoja, is a guy that's had his number in the past, once on the Ultimate Fighter and then also during his UFC stint as well. It was actually the loss that caused Moreno to get cut from the UFC, but I believe he's definitely on a track to try to get the win over Pantoja this weekend. Pantoja is currently on a three-fight winning streak, two of which he's finished over Brandon Royval and Alex Perez, who he showed absolutely no respect for, crashing the pocket as soon as that bell rung and eventually got his back and found that rear naked choke. Pantoja is a high-level BJJ black belt and probably does his best work when he's able to get opponents to the ground, get their back, and slowly look for that submission. His striking game is obviously not that bad either, as he shows great leg kicks and solid power in his punches. I believe he has a bit of a cardio issue still, which is why he starts to slow down uh, in the latter half of his matchups. And I wonder what his first five-round fight will look like in the UFC, especially if this fight is dragged into deep waters. But look for aggressiveness, power striking, and a very dangerous jiu-jitsu game if Pantoja is able to get his hand raised. Sometimes it's as easy as this guy has defeated, you know, fighter A has defeated fighter B, before so we should just continue to go with fighter a but over the last couple months especially this year we've been seeing kind of the contradiction to that we've seen guys go out there make the adjustments required to go out there and defeat their foe who has defeated them in the past and i think that's what's going to reign true here in brandon moreno am i so confident to the point to take the minus 220 on him probably not like that's a little bit too wide and we need to give pantoja some more respect than that but i think the five round nature of this fight Definitely favors Brandon Moreno, especially especially if he's able to survive the early onslaught from Pantoja. Which is what leads me to my second point in terms of the fight doesn't go to decision, probably being the best spot in this matchup. The under three and a half is a little bit sketchy because I think this could rain deeper into the fourth round and probably even to the fifth. So just taking the fight doesn't go to the decision straight up is probably the best way to go about it. 
But I think the the improved boxing, the improved footwork, and the better cardio from the Moreno side is the reason he'll likely win this fight in deep waters. I think his pace setting will be too much for Pantoja late, which will eventually allow him to you know really overwhelm him with strikes and possibly even set up a club and sub victory for himself. Pantoja is dangerous early though. Don't get me wrong. I think he's worth a shot on his money line, especially if you're seeking on who the value side is in this matchup. But like I said, five round nature and the improvements from the Moreno side will allow him to be safer as this fight gets into deep waters. And from there, I expect him to get a finish. Fight doesn't go to decision is likely where my, uh, you know, where my action will take place. But my prediction for this matchup is going to be Moreno and Moreno inside the distance. Time for the main event, which goes down in the featherweight division, where we have soon to be featherweight goat Alexander Volkanovsky coming in with a 25 and 2 record, going up against 15 and 3 interim champion Yair Rodriguez. Starting off on the Alexander Volkanovsky side, he's coming off his first loss in years. I believe it's been over 10 years since he had suffered a loss, and it came at the hands of Islam Mahachev in a very closely contested fight. After rewatching that fight, I do believe Mahachev deserved to get his hand raised, but I think people were surprised at how close that fight ended up being, especially with Mahachev closing as nearly a 4-1 to favorite that night. Volkanovski showed case solid takedown defense, but got caught in some bad positions at times and just was a little bit too lackadaisical in allowing Mahachev to ride out some of these controlled uh, spots and positions. But Volkanovski showcased solid striking, good takedowns of his own, and even better ground and pound from on top, especially in the last round of that matchup. Volkanovski is clearly the best featherweight on the planet right now, especially after cementing that rivalry he had against Max Holloway in his second last fight. That was a fight where he outstruck him thoroughly and just battered him over five rounds to get his hand raised by decision. Even though he's usually as a, at a height disadvantage, he utilizes every inch of his 71-inch reach that he has by utilizing his jab, his in-and-out footwork, and just knowing when to let go with a barrage of punches rather than just getting out of the way and trying to counter his opponents with a single shot. His wrestling game is very high level as well, and he does a great job of in terms of controlling his opponents from that top position and raining down damage from on top. He's not much known to be a huge finisher, at least since being in the UFC, but he is a master executioner of game plans, which is why he goes out there and continues to get win after win after win. I believe the Brian Ortega fight is the perfect example, which showcases why Volkanovski will reign supreme until age starts to catch up with him. He was put in some very bad positions against Ortega, positions that Ortega has finished time and time again. But Volkanovski showed patience, showed technique, and showed skill that he could get out of these bad positions and then get back to raining down damage and putting the hurting on Brian Ortega. On the flip side for Yair Rodriguez, it's been a big, you know, roller coaster run for him over the last several fights. He's gone from being a crowd favorite to a hot prospect to a guy that people just didn't want to see fight anymore to now being the interim champion in the featherweight division. It's been a very weird run for him to get to this point, though, considering he lost his fight to Max Holloway, beat Brian Ortega by an injury, and was awarded that interim title shot, and then destroyed a pretty washed Josh Emmett, especially from what we've been seeing from Emmett recently. Rodriguez is a very powerful striker with a very flashy striking game and has a very active guard off of his back, especially when he's able to relegate opponents to that full guard position. 
However, we've seen him break in the past. And I feel that some stylistic approaches or some stylistic matchups that he has has really favored him over his last couple fights. But there are holds to be seen. And Max Holloway has been able to exploit them. Let's see if Mr. Alexander Volkanovsky can find those holes as well. Outside of a Hail Mary knockout of any sort from Yair early in this matchup, I just don't see a rum in which way in which he wins this fight. I think Volkanovsky is just too polished, too phys- you know disciplined with his striking defense, his movement, his in and out footwork. All of that's going to be too much for Yair. Yair could have some success with his body kicks and landing some flashy strikes. Especially with the distance advantage and range that he likes to assert early in his fights. But as we've seen Volkanovski do in the past, he'll do a good enough job in terms of closing that distance, getting off his offense, or even landing takedowns and doing significant damage from on top. I'm kind of torn between whether he wins this fight inside the distance or if he wins it by decision. I have a very low confidence level that he actually wins it by decision. So I think just taking his chalky spot, throwing it into a parlay is not a bad way to go about it. I'd be surprised if Rodriguez is the guy to dethrone Alexander Volkanovsky in the featherweight division. Don't get me wrong, Volkanovsky is 34 years old and we know guys usually at this weight class can't really get too much done as they get up there in age. But I think that Volkanovsky still has a solid two to three years left competing at a very high level considering the lack of damage he's really been taking from opponents in the past and how calm and methodical he is when he competes inside the cage. So I think we get the unification about here and still Alexander Volkanovsky. I'm going to go by decision, but I'll probably have him thrown in a bunch of parlays as well. And there you guys go. Full card breakdown of UFC 290. A reminder, if you're looking for breakdowns on PFL and LFA this weekend, you can find that on the Patreon. A link in the description below. Make sure you guys check it out. And if you'd like to do your own predicting and researching yourself, links to the MMA Fight Card Archive are in the description below. You get direct links to past fights for all the fighters competing this weekend. So it makes your researching that much easier. I'll see you guys throughout the week with all the other great segments that I dropped for you guys. Good luck on all your action this weekend. And uh, yeah. See you guys again tomorrow. Peace. Last thing.